Philadelphia was one of only two churches of the seven addressed in the book of Revelation that were not censured by the Lord. Nothing negative was said about Smyrna, but nothing really positive was said about it either. She was simply encouraged to remain faithful. The church in Philadelphia received more than just encouragement. She received praise. And that makes her the only church of the seven to actually receive praise without some negative, without some censure from the Lord. And indeed, the church in Philadelphia was very special. Though an unimportant church, in the eyes of the world, she was dearly loved by our Lord. And because of her faithfulness, Christ set before her an open door that no one could shut. So let's see what our Lord had to say about this beloved church in Philadelphia. We're in Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut, because you have little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Philadelphia was the youngest city of the seven, having been founded by colonists from Pergamum under the reign of Attalus II, who ruled from Pergamum from 159 to 138 B.C. And it was in honor of Attalus' brother, whom he called Philadelphos, meaning the brother that I love, that it was named. The city was established as the video told us, primarily to be a center for the spreading of the Greek language and culture in Central Asia. It was located at the border of three countries for the express purpose of being a cultural mission. So from its very inception, Philadelphia had been a city with a mission. And it was to this church, the church located in Philadelphia, that the risen Christ writes identifying himself as he who is holy, who is true, and who has the key of David. Now, holy and true, we understand. To be holy is to be different, to be set apart from that which is ordinary. And to be true is to be genuine, for real, with no sham or pretense. But what does he mean when he says... He is the one who holds the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. Well, the picture seems to be drawn from the book of Isaiah. And in the 22nd chapter, we're told of an unfaithful steward to King Hezekiah named Shebna. Apparently, he'd been given full authority as the doorkeeper to the king and controlled who did or did not get an audience before him. But he misused his authority, using his position for personal gain, and became the shame of his master's house. God, therefore, declared to Isaiah that he was about to grasp Shebna, roll him into a ball, 
and then cast him into a vast country to die, deposing him from office. Now, I'm sure many of us would appreciate if God did that to self-serving politicians today. Anyway, he then declared that he was about to summon his servant Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, and that he was to be given Shebna's authority. And concerning him, God said, Then I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. When he opens, no one will shut. And when he shuts, no one will open. And I will drive him like a peg in a firm place. And he will become a throne of glory to his father's house. Apparently, the key of David is symbolic of the authority to give or bar entrance to the king. And as Eliakim alone had such authority in the earthly kingdom of David, so Jesus alone has the authority to grant or bar entrance into the eternal kingdom of God. And because he alone has such authority, Jesus could say, Behold, I have put before you an open door, which no one can shut. Now, in view of the previous reference to the key of David, it's most likely that Jesus is here primarily talking about his opening the door to the kingdom of God for the believers in Philadelphia. Because of their faithfulness to him, he had granted them access to the Father, and no one could shut them out. But it's also possible that the open door has reference to the door of opportunity. Now, the picture of a door, an open door, is often used in Scripture to illustrate missionary opportunity. More than once, Paul spoke of an open door before him. And it could be that Jesus is saying that just as the city of Philadelphia had been given the opportunity to evangelize the surrounding countries with Hellenistic culture, so the church in Philadelphia had been given the opportunity to evangelize with the word of Christ. That Christ himself had opened the door of opportunity for the church because of her deeds and faithfulness, and no one was going to be able to shut it, not even Caesar. Christ was going to use them to accomplish the greatest work in the world in spite of the fact that they were short on numbers, money, and influence in the community. That's probably what is meant by you have little power. He was saying that in spite of their apparent limitations, he's going to use them to do great things. Because they kept his word and had not denied his name. That's the key to success for any church. It's not numbers or money or influential members that make a church great. It's faithfulness to Christ and the willingness to take advantage of the opportunities he sets before us. That's what makes a great church. And that's what made the church in Philadelphia great. And that's why Jesus loved it so. And why he was willing to prove his love for the church there. Verses 9 through 11. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie, 
Behold, I will make them to come and bow down at your feet and to know that I have loved you. Because you've kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have in order that no one take your crown. Like the church in Smyrna, the church in Philadelphia had trouble with her Jewish neighbors. Apparently, they had not been infiltrated by the Nicolaitans, and they had not yet come under attack by uh, Roman authorities for failure to worship Caesar. But they were under fire from what Christ calls the synagogue of Satan, those who say they are Jews, but are not. And as we've seen before, this is apparently a reference to the antagonistic Jewish community that constantly hounded the church of Christ, claiming to be God's chosen people, the Jews who refused to acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah, mercilessly persecuted the church, bringing slanderous accusations against it and doing all they could to bring governmental wrath upon it. After all, who did these Christians think they were? The Jews had been God's people for centuries, and they were proud of it. In fact, God had prophesied through Isaiah that the nations would one day bow down before Israel and publicly acknowledge that they were God's chosen people. The Jews were longing for that day. They were fully expecting that all Gentiles, especially the hated Romans and the heretical Christians who claimed Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah, would one day bow at their feet. And they were determined to make their life miserable until that day. Well, Christ here declares that the Jews were in for a shock because the true Jews, the true Israelites, the true children of God were now the Christians. And one day the Jews who had closed their eyes to this truth would bow before them and know that God loves the church. The day is coming. When Christians will share in the glory of God and will sit with him in judgment over the unbelieving nations. And on that day, there will be no question as to who God loves and who belongs to him. Even before that time, Christ's love for the church will be evident in his protection of her. He here promises the church in Philadelphia that because they have kept the word of his perseverance, they have trusted in Christ to enable them to persevere, that they would be kept from the hour of testing that was coming upon the whole world. Now, at first glance, that seems to be a promise that Christ would spare them from difficult times. That he was promising to keep them from having to go through the hour of testing that was coming upon the world. Most likely a reference to the coming Roman persecution of the church. And in one respect, that is true. They had already proven themselves faithful and therefore no longer needed to be tested. This cannot be a promise that no trouble would come their way. That they were to be spared the persecution that everyone else would have to face. Nowhere does Christ promise to shield faithful churches or faithful Christians, in that matter, from times of trouble 
and persecution. He doesn't promise that. Perhaps we can better understand the phrase, keep you from the hour of testing, by looking to a similar statement Jesus said that's found in John 17, 14 through 15. It's found in Christ's priestly prayer for his disciples. And there we read, I have given them thy word, and the world has hated them, because they're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask thee to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Now, that does not mean that Satan would never be allowed to touch them. Only that they would be able to withstand his attacks. That he wouldn't be able to snatch them out of Christ's hands. And that's what Jesus is promising to the church in Philadelphia. Because of their willingness to Christ's trust to give them what they needed to endure, they would endure. He would see to it that they were kept secure through times of testing, the times of persecution that were coming. His love for them would be evidenced by the power he would give them to endure. And that love would be evidenced real soon. He said, I'm coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have in order that no one take your crown. Now, this can be a reference to the fact that Christ was on his way spiritually to help and strengthen and give to the church there what they needed. Or it can be a reference to the second coming. The word translated quickly can also be translated suddenly. If understood in that fashion... What we have here is an encouragement to hang on, to not give up, because Christ could come back at any moment. Now, I almost hate to use this illustration, because I'm sure some of you have heard it more than once. But it's the best illustration I have about the need to hang on. And not let go. Comes from a family vacation on the Lake of the Ozarks about 50 years ago when I was 14 or 15. I was trying to ski, to water ski, all the way from Bagnell Dam to the Lazy Hours Resort. This is a big challenge for me. After skiing for miles, it seemed like hours, I don't know how long. I was getting to the point where I really wanted to quit. All I could think of was, how much longer do I have to hang on? Well, a cabin cruiser just happened to come by about then. And if you've been on the Lake of the Ozarks, some of these big ships out there, I guess they're ships, they come by and, and there are waves that are, you know, mountainous. And I was going to have to go flying over that. And I thought, okay. That's it. This is all the excuse I need. I just threw up the rope. I said, I can't go any further. Couldn't do it. So I climbed in the boat and felt defeated. <laughs> we went probably 100 yards, turned a corner, and there was Lazy Hours Resort. Now, if I had known, if I had known it was that close... I could have hung on. 
I could have made it over that mountainous wave, that tsunami on the Lake of the Ozarks. Now, if I had known it was that close, I would have hung on. But I gave up. I gave up. And Jesus could very well be saying to Christians at Philadelphia, hang on because you don't know when I'm coming back. It could be at any moment. And wouldn't you feel foolish if you had given up your crown only to discover it could have been yours for all eternity if you'd only hung on for five minutes more. That's the way we're to live. That's why we don't know the day or the hour He's coming. He wants us to anticipate His coming at any moment. And that gives us the strength to hang on. Because we would hate for Him to come back ten minutes after we threw in the towel. So hang on. Jesus says, hang on. Let me prove my love to you by giving you what you need to endure. What you need to make your reward secure. Because I want to make you pillars in the temple of my God. Verses 12 and 13. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write upon him the name of my God. And the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You know, pillars of the community in ancient times were often remembered by having literal pillars erected in their honor upon their death. Many of the pillars in ancient temples, therefore, bore the inscriptions of famous citizens and faithful priests. That practice is no doubt in view here. Christ promised to make the overcomers into pillars in the spiritual temple of God. He promised to give them a place of honor and permanence in the eternal city of God. He also assured them that they wouldn't have to go out from it anymore. And that's quite possibly an allusion to the unstable nature of life in the city of Philadelphia. In 17 A.D., an earthquake that destroyed neighboring Sardis and ten other cities also destroyed Philadelphia. And the city remained the victim of ever-recurring earth tremors. As our video noted, this had quite an effect on the inhabitants of Philadelphia. They never knew when a tremor would shake loose some more stone or mortar and bring a house crashing down about them. As a result of this, many people chose to live outside the city in small mud huts that were uncomfortable but safe. And many more would flee from the city at the very first sign of a tremor. It was to Christians who lived in temporary insecurity that Christ promised eternal security. 
He said if they would remain faithful to him, he would make them pillars in the eternal temple of God. And he said he would write upon them the name of God, the name of the city of God, the new Jerusalem, and his new name. They would be marked out for all eternity as belonging to him, as being acceptable to the Father, and as being residents of the eternal city of God. Such was the promise to the overcomers. And history records that the Christians in Philadelphia responded to that promise and remained faithful to Christ. The famous historian Edward Gibbons wrote in the decline and fall of the Roman Empire that among the churches of Asia, Philadelphia remained erect, a column in a scene of ruins, a pleasing example that the path of honor and safety may sometimes be the same. Until the Turks finally overthrew Philadelphia in the 14th century, the church there remained a bulwark for Christianity. And even today, there are thousands of Christians in the modern city built on the remains of ancient Philadelphia. There's over 200 different Christian churches in that city today. A very rare happening in modern Turkey. The little church in Philadelphia took advantage of the open door set before us. The believers there trusted Christ to use them, and they hung on until he came for them, and were therefore made pillars in the eternal city of God. Obviously, the question before us is what about the little church in Chatham? Are we taking advantage of the opportunities for service and witness that our Lord sets before us? Are we allowing him to use us? Are we faithful to his word and his name? Are we persevering? Are we holding fast, ever mindful that he could come for us at any moment? Do we long to be pillars in the temple of God, to be marked with the name of our God, his city, and our Savior for all eternity? I trust, I trust that we are. God has placed us here for a reason. It's essential, it's essential that we stay true to his purpose for our existence that we look for those open doors of opportunity he sets before us without trying to create false projects or things that make us feel like we're doing something. Just stay open to what he's called us to be and to do and to walk through the doors he opens for us, trusting that he'll use us. God has done some pretty amazing things through us over the years. And we're excited to, to look around the world and see our young men and women serving in so many areas. But we never want to get to the place where we're content to say, well, yeah, we had a glorious past. We did things right a few years ago, and now we're reaping the benefits of it. May God still open up for us opportunities for ministry and service. May he still call young people from our church that are growing up in this body 
into his service. May we be pillars in the kingdom of God forever. We don't have to look great in the eyes of the world. We don't have to impress anybody except our Lord. And we do that through our faithfulness to him. May we be faithful to him. May he come in to our heart as we open up to him and then allow us to go through the doors he opens for us as a body. Let's stand.